Amen. Would you be seated, church family, and as you do, will you take your copy of God's Word and turn to Genesis chapter 15. We will look at all 21 verses of Genesis 15 this morning as we continue here uh, in our origin series, this section being called The Promise, focusing particularly on promise of God made to Abram. As you get settled and your notes out, uh, I do want to address just quickly that this Tuesday is the day in our society where we go to the polls to elect local and national leaders. Uh, I addressed this uh, in more detail on Wednesday night. I have a little more time to be able to do that um, in in that uh, schedule. And so if you are interested in a little bit more of what I would have to say on this, would you... um, Go to one of our podcast places or our website, and you can listen to the first 10 minutes or so of my equip session on Wednesday. Uh, I did not do something then that I will also not do today. I do not endorse political candidates. I do not endorse political parties, and I don't tell you how to vote because you're smart, godly people, and you can figure that out for yourself based on your own personal convictions uh, and being guided by Scripture. But I do want to encourage us in this. Regardless of what happens Tuesday or Wednesday or Thursday or Friday, whenever we actually find out, regardless of what you want to happen, refrain from hand-wringing, refrain from wailing and gnashing of teeth, because when believers do that, here's what we communicate to the world, that our faith is in some type of political system, that our faith is in a temporal nation that our faith is in a politician and not in the God that we have worshiped this morning. Hear me, God is in control. This will all burn. It will all pass away. As much as many in here revere the U.S. Constitution, it will one day burn in the fire. And God And his sovereign justice, truth, and mercy will reign forever. So regardless of what we believe is best for our country, what we would hope to happen over the next four years from a national perspective all the way down to these local elections, go vote and trust the Lord. That he will do, as we see here so many times over and over in this series in Genesis, that he will do what he will do for his glory. And we put our faith in him to bring about the most glorious end for himself. I'll invite you now to stand with me this morning for the sake of time. Instead of reading the entire chapter, I'm going to begin in verse 5 and just read verses 5 and 6 of Genesis 15. This is a vision, a conversation between the Lord and Abram. Verse 5 begins, And he brought him outside and said, Look toward the heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. Let's pray together. Father, this morning, we do pray for uh, our nation. We pray for the state of Virginia. We pray for the cities here, Suffolk, Chesapeake, 
Carrollton, Isle of Wight, Portsmouth, those which we draw from as a church, recognizing uh, that we will go and select leaders. And we are grateful, Father, for the freedom that you have granted to us that we can together uh, vote and that we can practice this, um, our civic responsibility together. Guard us, Father, from promoting within our hearts an agenda beyond that which you would have us to promote. I pray, God, that you would help each and every one of us in here to think clearly this week as we were to do so, all while recognizing that you are a sovereign, mighty, holy, just God who will bring about the best end for your glory and our good. Let us be a people that demonstrate faith. Let us be a people that retains our gospel influence. And let us be a people that show a lost and dying world that there is a Savior who loves them and he is not on the ballot on Tuesday. As we turn to your word now, would you bless us? Would you instruct us? Would you cause our faith to grow, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. I've entitled this sermon from Genesis 15, Covenant of Faith. Faith is our subject this morning. Far too often as we think about the Old Testament and the New Testament really as compared to one another, So many times we will think of the Old Testament as being about works and that people somehow earned their way into good graces with God and either by their uh, lineage or by some type of uh, work that they were able to do to please God, they were then made right with him and then Jesus comes and changes everything and then now all of a sudden we have the covenant of grace whereby we can do anything we want to and as long as we give lip service to Jesus, uh, we'll still get to go to heaven when we die. You recognize neither one of those things rightly represents the covenants that are made by God with his people in either the Old Testament or the New Testament. Both are covenants of faith. Neither are covenants of works. Neither are a cheap entry either by some type of religious system that checks the boxes or some cheap entry by walking an aisle and praying a prayer and then going about your life as however you would see fit. Both covenants demand sincere faith. Both covenants are exemplified in the life by faith that puts action to what is said to believe. We'll see this here from Abraham this morning. Genesis 15 follows directly on the heels, obviously, of Genesis 14. The one chapter in which we saw the divine voice of God in the story of Abram not speaking. Where Abram in the only instance we see in his life where he is a military conqueror, where against all odds, Abram goes against five uh, very powerful kings, defeating them, bringing his nephew Lot 
back home. But now the voice of God reappears. And really what was lacking in Genesis 14, that divine voice of the Lord dominates Genesis 15. This is a conversation holy between God and Abram. A conversation that communicates this covenant of faith, which is clearly spoken by the Lord to Abraham. Genesis 15 begins with the Lord appearing to Abraham and stating his covenant to him. Look at verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. This is the only time here in Genesis that we're told that the Lord appears in a vision. It's actually a fairly uncommon word. The word translated into the English Bibles as vision only appears two other times in the entire Old Testament. There was a much more popular term uh, for the term vision, an appearance of the Lord in a word to someone. But here it is used to, this, this less common word is used to clearly communicate what is happening. This type of vision isn't about some image that Abraham sees as much as it is about the word that Abram hears. While the Lord has spoken to Abram before in previous chapters, this time he is doing so in a much more clear and intimate way. We're told that the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. And what is the first thing the Lord says to him there in, chapter, in verse 1? Fear not. Now, we're told here that after these things, that's how the verse begins, after these things, meaning that we're supposed to keep chapter 14 in our minds. That's why it says after these things. So we know that this takes place, um, if not immediately, at least within the context of the military conquest that Abram goes on to rescue his nephew Lot up against these overwhelming odds facing these Mesopotamian kings. And so in that context, the Lord appears to Abram and says, fear not. Now, Abram showed no fear whatsoever in chapter 14. Even though he had only uh, 300 or so men with him, even though he was going up against some of the greatest military power in the Middle East at the time, even though He was facing great odds. We see no fear whatsoever in Genesis 14. But the first instruction to the Lord in Genesis 15 is for Abram not to fear. While he did not fear the overwhelming odds of battle in Genesis 14, Abram needed calming when presented the vision from God. (laughs) You see, Mesopotamian kings are nothing to the Lord Almighty appearing to you. And the Lord here appears to Abram and calms his fears and says, Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. This promise here of God, this communicated covenant to Abram really has two parts. The first being, I am your shield, continuing here in that military language borrowed from Genesis 14. But there's more wrapped up in what he's saying than just, I am some type of physical barrier for you. That term could also be translated, I am your benefactor. I am the, I am the, 
big brother, if you will, on the playground standing behind the little brother saying, I dare you to pick on this one. He is, he's his benefactor, his shield. He's the reason no harm will come to you and your reward shall be very great. This is the covenant between God and Abram summed up very succinctly. There is great reward coming to you, Abram. And the Lord states this to him. And then Abram questions the Lord concerning this covenant. Abram then turns in this vision to the Lord and speaks and he says, oh Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Elizar of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. Abram had followed the Lord to this point. He had left Ur of the Chaldeans, going to a land that he did not know. Upon coming to that land, he builds altars and worships the Lord. He has this brief period of self-reliance where he goes down to Egypt, but ultimately comes clean and returns back there to the promised land before going on his military conquests and now returning. And because of these events, Abram's this wealthy man, many possessions, and yet he has this one thing that he lacks for the promise of God to be made real in his life, and that is a child. Because the promise of God to Abram wasn't that he was going to have worldly wealth, it was going to, he was going to have great descendants. That his people, those who come after him, his generations would inherit this land and would become a great nation. And Abram looks at this promise of God and, and looks at these things that are surrounding him, this great wealth, and he says, oh, but God, what will you give me? Because eventually I'm going to die. And when I die, Eliza of Damascus is going to inherit all of this stuff that I've collected. Now it begs this question, who in the world is Eliza of Damascus? Likely he's a servant in Abram's house. There's a, there was a common practice in uh, ancient culture that allowed a childless family to actually uh, adopt, not in the same sense that we think of adoption of children today, but to adopt a servant in their house and elevate them to a position to where that person will both mourn their death, bury them, and then continue on their legacy and inherit their wealth. And that's likely who Eliza of Damascus is. He's not of the line of Abram. He is someone who is a part of Abraham's, of Abram's household as a servant. And he says, this is the person who I've designated to continue in my place. So how are you going to give me this? I, I've, I've been given no offspring. There's no member of my own household, meaning member of my own blood. There's no generation after me who will be my heir. He fails to see, Abram does, how the future promise of God had anything to do with him. Because at this point, he's old. His wife has been for decades now unable to bear children. So while Abram has trusted God up until this point to follow him and to do as God has instructed him to do, he still can't see past this mountain in front of him. And the mountain in front of him is that he and Sarai are childless. And his question to God is not accusatory. His question to God is not 
ill-spirited. He's not wagging his finger at God. He's just saying, God, I, I, I can't see past this. I can't see how you're going to do this because we can't pass on to a future generation that does not exist. Yet the Lord then reaffirms his covenant to Abram in verses four and five. He says, and behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Eliza of Damascus will not be your offspring. Your very own son shall be your heir. And we read in verse five, and he brought him outside and said, look towards the heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. God says to Abram, Abram, go outside and look up. And this is one of several times that Abram is encouraged in these restated covenants of God to try to count something that is uncountable. Go outside and look up, Abram. Not with light pollution from from naval installations and shipbuilding yards around you, but out here in the middle of nowhere, go out and look up, Abram, and, and try to count what you see if you were able. And of course, as we would know, Abram would be unable to do so, but the promise of God is this, show so shall your offspring be. Eliza of Damascus won't be your offspring. Your very own son shall be. And not only will you have a son, not only will this mountain in front of you that you can't seem to get over be moved, but he will have children and his children will have children. And that gener- those generations will go on and on throughout time and you will not even be able to number them, Abram. You see, the promise of God to Abram was not just that he would have a child, And that's going to become important next week as Abram tries to shortcut this process. And then ultimately as Abram has a son named Isaac. It's not just this one son that's the promise. It's God is speaking into Abram's life and he's saying, "You, you can't even comprehend what I'm going to do on the other side of this mountain, Abram. You, you, can't, you can't even comprehend. That's why he tells him to go look at the stars because the stars are this uncountable thing to us. And when we, when we really understand what God is saying to Abram, he's saying, Abram, you, you're not even going to really understand this. If I told you, you wouldn't be able to understand it. If I really gave you true, full knowledge of it, Abram, it would be like the stars in the sky to you. You would gaze up at them and just in awe and wonder. And so God says, Abram, you are going to be richly blessed. And Abram turns and says, but how, God? Your promises to me require that I have an heir. And we're long past that date. And yet God said, oh, Abram, look at the stars. Try to have some semblance of understanding of what I am going to do for you. And then we get to one of the most important verses in all of Genesis. And he believed the Lord. And he counted it to him as righteousness. Abram believed the covenant of the Lord in faith. Abram could not see how the Lord would accomplish this. We know this is true because next week we're going to see how Abram tries to shortcut it. How Abram tries to help, just as he tried to help by fleeing to Egypt in chapter 13, or in chapter 12, 13, yeah. 
He's going to try to shortcut it next week. But here's Abrams. I don't, I don't know how this is going to happen. I have no idea if I don't have any children, how I'm ultimately going to have children like the stars in the sky, but yet I believe you. He, can't, he, he believed him in faith. Up until this point, we've seen Abram follow the Lord. We've seen Abram worship the Lord. We've even seen Abram trust the Lord to go to places that he would show him without knowing where he was going. We've seen others prior to Abram in our study in Genesis do the same thing. But this is the first time the term faith appears in the scripture. It's the first time we're actually told that someone has faith. Now, this does not mean that Abram or even those preceding Abram up until this point did not have faith. But this ultimately serves as a culminating event in the Genesis account for us. Serving really as this fulcrum, this point that all things within the covenant of God with his people are going to point back to. The apostles are going to make a big deal out of this verse in the New Testament, which is where we'll end today. Because as they looked back on the Old Testament, here's what they understood. This was never about works. It was never about what we do for God, but always about believing in what God is doing and has done for us. And Abram believed the Lord. He believed him. He had faith. Because I know you look at verse six and you say, wait, I don't see Faith in verse six, that word believed is the Hebrew word for faith. He had faith in the Lord. So what then is faith? So often we've turned to Hebrews 11 as we've been here in this series in Genesis, which shows us how these Old Testament giants had faith in God. And the author of Hebrews begins that section by defining faith for us. And we read, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. So then what is faith? Faith is believing that God will do what only he can do. When all we have is hope. When all is left is I can't do anything on my own. I can only hope that God is going to do what he alone can do. That is faith. When we don't see a way possible. When we can't comprehend the other side of this mountain standing in front of us, that is faith when we still affirm that God is able and will do what he has promised. Faith, which is a gift from God, is the conviction within us that God will ultimately keep his word. And this is what Abram does. He practices this faith here not knowing how God will do it, but believing that God will. And then we're told that this belief, this faith is credited to Abram as righteousness. You see, it wasn't the altars that Abram built in this strange land that are credited to him as righteousness. It wasn't his obedience to leave Ur of the Chaldeans and go to a land that God would show him that was credited to him as righteousness. It wasn't his military prowess that was credited to him as righteousness. It wasn't his rejection of the wicked king of Sodom at the end of chapter 14 that was credited to him as righteousness. It was one thing alone, faith. That's all Abram has, faith. And this is Abram who eventually becomes Abraham, this giant of giants in the Old Testament. 
If anyone should have been able to claim righteousness by works, it would be Abraham, right? If there's anybody we should be able to look back on and say, hey, that guy had it figured out. That guy there, man, he followed God. He became the father of a great nation. This is a guy that communed with God. This is a guy that did great things for God. Surely he could look at his life and say, hey, see my righteousness, God? And yet, no. The only righteousness that Abram possessed, he possessed because it was given to him according to the faith that God had supplied If anyone should have been able to claim righteousness, it was him. But no, it all comes down to faith. Then, the covenant of faith is uniquely confirmed. Now, we're going to get to one of the strangest things that happens in all 50 chapters of Genesis. You ready? Watch. It begins first with a question. Again, for the second time here in this chapter, Abram questions the Lord concerning the covenant. Verses seven and eight, and he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, oh Lord, how am I to know that I shall possess it? So right after the affirmation within scripture that Abram believes the Lord, has faith in the Lord and has credited him as righteousness, Abram asks another question leading us to this conclusion. Faith doesn't mean you won't have questions. Faith also doesn't mean that all of your questions will even eventually have answers, at least temporarily, temporally in this world. Faith doesn't mean you won't ask questions. Abram's not wrong for asking this question. Abram's not lacking faith for asking this question. And listen to me, church, just a little sidebar for a moment. When another Christian comes to you in in a crisis of faith and they're, they're questioning things, don't look down on them. Don't treat them like they're doing something wrong. Look, people are going to ask questions. As pastor people, people ask me questions all the time. And here's what I hope that I communicate. I hope I communicate that I don't have all the answers, but I hope that I'll communicate that faith overcomes any question that we have. Because we may not know how God is going to do what he promises to do. We may not know all of the details about what the future holds or even what is contained within the past, but in faith, we can believe the word of God is true. We can believe the promises of God are true. So while coming to faith in Jesus doesn't mean you won't continue to have questions about the universe and how things work and about how morality interacts with the practice in our lives. And you, you, you may not receive all of the answers to all of the questions of life here in this world, but faith means you believe in God anyway and you trust him. And so even in his faith, Abram turns to God and says, but how, <laughs> how will I know? He doesn't say, God, how are you going to do it? He says, how can I know you're going to do it? And so the Lord provides a visual display of his covenant with Abram. Look at verses 9 through 11. He said to him, bring me a heifer, three years old, a female goat, three years old, a ram, three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. So bring me a cow, a sheep, a goat, Two birds. Verse 10. And he brought him all of these and cut them in half. Things got weird. And laid each half against the other. 
but he did not cut the birds in half. So before we get to verse 11, here's what you need to picture. And by the way, this is not in some type of grand vision. Abram's actually doing these things, okay? Abram gets a cow, he gets a sheep, he gets a goat, he gets two birds and the bigger animals, he cuts in half. I don't know if he cut them long ways or down the middle, okay? Doesn't matter, it's already strange. But he cuts them in half, and when it says that he laid them against one another, he means that he put half of this animal over here and half of this animal over here, and then the same thing. So it goes from big to small. Then he kills one bird, puts it over here, kills another bird, puts it over here. That's what God told him to do. So that's what Abram does, right? Then verse 11, and when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. So God tells Abram, bring these things and do this. And Abram brings those things and does that and kind of sits in the midst of these dead animals. And when the carrion birds do what carrion birds do, come and eat dead flesh, Abram has to shoo it away. Now, there's two things happening here in these verses. First, this is likely uh, an ancient Bronze Age covenant ceremony. And we actually know that there are similar covenant ceremonies that exist outside of the Bible um, within this same time period. So, so this is likely at least similar to other covenant ceremonies that kings would make with other kings. And that they would slaughter animals and we'll see here in a minute walk in between the carcasses as a sign of their covenant. But this is probably also more than that. It is also an opportunity for the Lord to teach Abram. That's where the birds of prey come in in verse 11. That's why God doesn't affirm his covenant right away. He wants Abram to see that there's going to be this time of trial and this time of testing. And so Abram lays out these carcasses and God then is silent, at least for some period of time, at least long enough for the birds to get wind of it and start to try to come and eat. And Abram has to shoo them away. And verse 11 then leads into the, the, the following verses where the Lord provides this future knowledge concerning the covenant. So here's what God is picturing for Abraham, right? As these birds come and Abraham has to shoo them away, God's showing that there's going to be this time of testing and trial. That, that this covenant is not going to be yes immediately, at least all of it is not going to be yes immediately. But there's going to be these these other things that try to come in and steal that promise away. Look at verses 12 through 16. As the sun was going down, so Abram sat there for a while, remember? Because this began with Abram looking up at the stars, right? In just previous verses, he looked up at the stars. So we can imagine it was morning time, he slaughters these animals. He's been sitting there all day. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. So he's tired at this point. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in the land that is not theirs and will be a servant there and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve and afterwards they will come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age and they shall come back here in the fourth generation for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete." So what the birds of prey here represent is the persecution, the suffering that Abram's descendants would have to go through before ultimately obtaining the promise of God manifest in the promised land. Now, in verse 13, we see that 
This is going to last for 400 years. And in verse 16, we're going, we see that it, it lasts for four, to the fourth generation. Now, we often think of generations being these shorter periods of time, right? 20, 30 years. An ancient understanding of a generation was an entire lifetime. And a lifetime at this point was around 100 years. And so a the four generations of verse 16 and the 400 years of verse 13 actually are reaffirming one another. But this is what God is saying. God is telling Abram what the original receivers of this text, the people of God during Exodus from, gen, from uh, captivity in Egypt, already knew to be true. This trial was coming for the descendants of Abram, but that God would ultimately deliver them, and keep his promise. And then verse 16 gives us even a little more information. Not only that they would come back in the fourth generation, that means 400 years, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. The end of verse 16 puts the promise of God in the context of the morality of the Canaanite line that possesses this land now. You see, God is at work. And God, even in the sons of disobedience, the scriptures tell us, God is at work. And God is at work here in these Canaanites, these different clans, tribes of the Canaanites, which the Amorites were one of. And God says their their iniquity, their sin, their unrighteousness is going to have to play out for some time longer. And then ultimately, Abram, your descendants will inherit this land. Finally, the Lord confirms his unilateral covenant. Verse 17, when the sun had gone down, so now it's completely night again. This has gone on for the better part of an entire day. And it was dark. Behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord God made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land, from the rivers of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kizanites, the Kadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Raphim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. These are all different tribes there that possess the land that God is promising to Abram. And in verse 17, we see those carcasses are still there, but now Abram sees the smoking fire pot and flaming torch pass between the pieces because this is what in the ancient in, in this uh, ancient ritual, covenant ritual, those making the covenant would do. They would pass between those sacrificed pieces. And often in the Old Testament, fire represents God. And so in the form of fire, God passes between the pieces. Abraham doesn't pass. It is only the Lord. It is only the Lord that passes between the pieces because this covenant between God and Abraham is a unilateral covenant. You see, Abram brings nothing to the party. Abram's not promising anything to God because he possesses nothing that doesn't already belong to God. All Abram is doing is believing that God is going to do what God is promising to do. It is God who is the possessor of all things. It is God who is going to give him descendants. It is God who is going to bless those descendants and rescue them from persecution. It is God who is going to ultimately give them the land that is possessed by their enemies. This alone is the Lord's covenant and the Lord makes it and ultimately the Lord keeps it. So what? We take part in the Lord's covenant by faith alone. I know for many of you, you thought yesterday was Halloween. 
Maybe it was, maybe it wasn't. But to church history nerds and theology nerds, yesterday wasn't Halloween. Yesterday was Reformation Day. Because 503 years ago, a little-known man in Germany wanted to start a conversation. So he did what people did during that day to start conversations. He posted to Facebook. Kind of. You see, the Facebook of the day was doors of uh, commonly used buildings. And so he went to All Saints Chapel, a commonly used building in Wittenberg, and nailed 95 talking points. It would have been a long Facebook post. 95 talking points to the door. People began to read them. This ultimately sparks a reformation within the church that leads to today where we are still seeing the reformation of God's church where he is continuing to purify her. I don't just mention this because it was yesterday that we celebrated Reformation Day, but if you were to actually read those 95 theses, which I would encourage you to do, it actually doesn't take that long. Get the English version, not the German one. It'll be kind of hard in German. But if you'll read that, you'll notice that Luther visits several subjects, but always kind of returning to one central theme. And here's the central theme. Salvation cannot be bought, salvation cannot be earned, and salvation cannot be given by human hands. This was what Luther was challenging in that day. He was challenging the idea that the rich could buy their way into the kingdom of heaven, that they could buy what were known as indulgences. Basically, they could give a lot of money to the church, and the church would say, all of your sins are forgiven. He was challenging that we could somehow earn by works our way in so that someone could do enough good things in this life for the church that they would then have salvation. Or that the Pope, the leader of the church in that day, that that he could look upon his friends and say, you have salvation, while not granting it to others. This was Luther's primary contention. That salvation comes by one means alone, by grace, through faith, and the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ only. That there is no other way. This is the message of the New Testament. Even when the New Testament authors look back on the message of the Old Testament, it is still the message of the New Testament. And often they look back on Genesis 15 to help make that point. The Apostle Paul does it in two places, the first being Galatians chapter 3, which is if if there was ever a a rant in the New Testament, it's the book of Galatians. Paul is angry. He's angry that there are people who have come behind him into the church and are trying to lead them into the false doctrine of salvation by works. And here, listen to what he says to them. He says, oh, foolish Galatians. Paul is yelling at this point. Who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the spirit to you and work miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Know then 
that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. We, like all Christians before us, enter into the covenant of God by first hearing the gospel and then believing the gospel. That is the only path, the only way that we can take part in the covenant of God, the only way that we can become sons and daughters of Abraham is by faith alone. Faith in what? Well, Romans 4, Paul also writing there tells us, Appealing again to Genesis 15, he writes, When then shall we say, what then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted to him as righteousness. And at the end of that chapter, but the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead, Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. So what do we believe to be a part of the covenant of God? We believe that Jesus is who the scripture says that he is. That he died in the way that the scripture says that he died and that the power of God raised him from the dead so that we might be saved. It is faith alone in the substitutionary death of Jesus that makes us right with God. You will never earn it. You will never buy it. You will never inherit it. It only comes because you have faith that God will move that mountain of sin that stands between you and he. And listen, if you thought it was hard For Abram to see how he could have descendants when he and his wife were in their old age without children, we should also see it as abundantly difficult for us to even imagine that we could overcome this gulf that stands between us and God. And yet he spans that gulf by Jesus for us. If we will but believe in faith. And yet there is one other use of Genesis 15 in the New Testament. Seemingly maybe to some to be at odds. Some would say that what Paul writes in Galatians and Romans directly contradicts what James writes. But not really. If we really understand what James is writing, we will see that James really is continuing the argument. He says in verse 22, you see, You see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works and the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. I'm gonna come back to it. And in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by faith when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. You may say, Pastor, doesn't James chapter 2 verse 24 directly contradict your, your statement here in this point of application? Because I've said we take part in the Lord's covenant by faith alone. And the scripture says in James 2 24, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Am I somehow telling you the Bible is wrong? No. I'm saying we have to understand what James is attempting to communicate here 
so we can really know what's being said. James is not saying, in contradiction to the rest of the New Testament, that there is any way for us to work for our salvation. So then what is he saying here? He's saying that the kind of faith that Abram has, the kind of faith that is required within us, the kind of faith that is real and meaningful and believes that God is ultimately going to save us and bring us into right relationship with him is the kind of faith that shows it. It's the kind of faith that proves it. It's the kind of faith that works not so we will receive salvation, but it's the kind of faith that works as an example of that salvation. For far too long, the Western church, this this American version of Christianity has said, well, as long as you walked an aisle one day when you were a little kid and got up there in your pretty white robe and we got you wet in front of people, no matter what you do for the rest of your life, you're going to be right with God. Listen to me, folks. That's not what Scripture says. Scripture says real faith, saving faith, is the kind of faith that lives for the Lord. It's the kind of faith that people can see. It's the kind of faith that that has action behind it. Because without action behind our faith, is that faith really faith at all? James says that kind of faith is really a dead faith. But the kind of faith that truly changes someone from the inside and makes them new in Christ is the kind of faith that walks diligently with the Lord. Now, some may be sitting in here thinking, wait, are you saying that every little thing that I do right and wrong is still counted for and against me? No, not at all. Hear me, Christian. The goal today is not to have you question your faith and to question if you're truly in God because you got angry yesterday and sinned because uh, you saw something with your eyes that caused your mind to dwell on something that caused you to sin because of some action that you've had in the last week or the last month or even since we've been sitting in here today. No, that, listen, the grace of God is mighty and it expands all of our sins past, present, and future. So this isn't about you looking inward and questioning that, but it is about some possibly who have never had faith that actually has any kind of action at all. That truly would look at their works and say, this is what makes me right with God. This is what I've done to earn it. Those people out there, they've not done that, but, but I have. And one day I'm gonna be able to stand before God and say, look at all this great stuff that I've done. Listen. If what you're saying is look at all this great stuff that I've done, you have no faith at all. And if you claim to have faith but aren't truly obedient to God, then you probably don't have faith at all either. But here's the good news. We can do something about it today. Whether you're sitting in this room with us or watching online, you can do something about it today. And here's what you do. You believe. Do just what Abram did. He believed and was credited to him as righteousness You see, we can't earn our righteousness, but in belief, God grants us the righteousness of Christ. So you believe today, knowing this, that if you truly believe and come to him in faith today, he will save you, and that faith will then put action upon action upon action for the rest of your life as you walk with him, and he makes you into the image of his son. Let's pray together. Help us, God. We pray now. Let us be people of action who see our faith out loud, who live our faith out loud. 
let us recognize that it is not those works that save us. That even Abraham was only right with you because he believed you. And the only way that we could possibly ever be right with you is to believe you. To receive that gift of faith which you bring into our lives most graciously. Making us new in Christ Jesus. Would you do that now, we pray, by the power of your Holy Spirit. Make people new, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. If you're watching with us online, there's a website on your screen right now. You could go to that website and fill out that form. One of our pastors will contact you. We'd love to talk to you about how you can come to faith in Jesus. If you've put your faith in Jesus today, fill out that form. Let us know. If you're in the room, I'm going to be standing with our Connect team out in the lobby when we're over. Would you come and find me and just say, hey, I've put my faith in Jesus today. Maybe you say, I have a question. <laughs> I'm, I'm like Abram. I, I believe, but man, I got questions. Come, come and talk to me. Let me help you in this walk with the Lord. However you would respond, we do so together now in our hearts as we stand together and sing.